Well, I'm kind of intimidated right now. Probably the hardest chapter, I think, in all the Gospels to try to explain. Um, But it is fascinating, and I think we can all agree with that. I mean, the topic itself, I mean, books are written about it, movies are made about it, there there is an allure, perhaps a curiosity, maybe even a fear over this idea of the end of the world. I mean, th- this, th- this idea that some, even, even the non-religious that will be here, th- there's a certain interest in it. I mean, very few people believe that it just goes on forever. You know, th- that the world and life will just keep spinning in circles all the way till the end. I mean, few believe that. Well, what do you think about the end of the world? I mean, do you think it's going to be this cataclysmic meteor that hits us, I think, as it's predicted to do in 2080? I love those predictions, by the way. They're not here if they're wrong. And if they're right, who's going to be able to tell them? I mean, they're all gone. But, but is it going to be a meteor? Is it going to be a nuclear explosion? Is it going to be overpopulation? What, what's it going to be? <clears throat> and, and when is it going to be? So, so not just what is it, but when is it going to be? I mean, do you care about these things? Does it concern you? Do you ever consider these things just about your day, about this idea of the end of the world? Well, these questions were actually asked by the disciples of Jesus um, after he had said not one stone to be left upon another in chapter 24, verse 1. These questions, can we even untangle this passage? I think we can a little bit. I mean, Jesus did prompt the whole discussion by saying not one stone will be left upon another. Remember, Jesus was the one that said this temple is going to be destroyed. Now, saying that, he's really implying that once the temple is destroyed, at least the disciples would have heard him say you know, the world's going to end. I mean, if the temple's gone, then everything's gone. If God's presence on the earth is removed, then, then we're all toast. It's all over. But I think the disciples might have also understood this might be a good thing. Because if, if the temple's gone and the world ends, now Jesus can set up his kingdom, and he can be king, and he can give us those positions of authority that he promised us. So the disciples may have heard it with a, a, a bit of excitement that the temple would be destroyed, meaning that they might have places of prominence and importance. And so what Jesus is trying to do with this chapter is he's instructing them, saying, no, there's going to be a delay between the destruction of the temple and the return of the king. There'll be a delay. And, and you need to know that, otherwise, otherwise you might be deceived and you might fall, into, you might fall away in faith that you won't persevere. So I think he's trying to encourage them that there's going to be this time that passes before the end. Now, I realize that as I begin to explain this, um, I'm not going to answer every question you may have. I didn't answer every question I have. And I kind of embrace the writing of uh, G.K. Chesterton, who said that, he says, the fool tries to get heavens in his head and naturally his head bursts. The, the wise man tries to get his head into the heavens. And that's what I want to do. I, I want to try to understand what Jesus is saying and not what he's not saying. In other words, this passage doesn't speak about the resurrection. It doesn't speak about the eternal state. It doesn't speak about a rapture. It doesn't speak about Armageddon. 
It doesn't speak about the millennium. I want to stick to what Jesus says in this. I'm sure I will not satisfy all of you in my explanation. I would ask you to to put to the side um, your preconceived ideas about the end of the world that you've heard from TV preachers or perhaps that you've heard uh, on the radio. And, And we're going to try to look at this text with a bit of fresh eyes. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's really giving us two chunks of time to think about. He's going to speak in verses 15 to 28 about the end of our present age. How will our present age end? And then in 29 through 35, he's going to speak about how the new age will begin. In other words, how the new age will start. I don't think Jesus gave this last discourse before the cross so as to satisfy everyone's curiosity about the details and the dates of of his return. I think he's trying to preserve us. He's trying to instruct us so that we might endure faithfully until the end. I think that's the point of it. So I want to speak about how the age will end, this present age that you and I are currently living in, and how the new age will begin. So if you think back on what Kimmy was reading, particularly in verse 15, starting in verse 15. Well, before I get to verse 15, let me just remind you of last week. So when Edgar preached on verses 1 to 14, that was kind of a flyover of the whole end times. He talks about the signs that will be coming, and then the gospel will be preached to the ends of the world, and then the end will come. So you kind of see the whole thing right there. But you notice in verse 15, he kind of goes back to the beginning. And this is the fall of Jerusalem. He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem. Let me remind you about the signs of the times that Edgar spoke about last week. He said that there's going to be uh, wars and, and rumors of wars. He said, Jesus said, but the end's not going to be there. The end's not going to come. And, and then he said, there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be false Christ, but that's not the end either. Then he said, many of you are going to suffer persecution for my name's sake, but that's not the end either. Remember, it ended in verse 14. He says, the gospel will go out to the ends of the world, then the end will come. Then the end will come. So all these signs and trials and tribulations are not the end. They are the birth pangs of the end. It's important for you to get that down. That's the present age. That's the new normal that we live in. Okay, so if you saw in verse 14, he says, then the end will come. But in verse 15, he goes back to the beginning. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, according to Daniel, what he's doing here is he's going back and trying to tell the apostles, this is how it's all going to start. This is where the clock starts, right here. In other words, the signs of the time that will lead to the end, it starts with the desecration of Jerusalem. At least that's what I think the abomination of desolation means. I mean, what is that? Is it a person? Is it a figure? Is it a fog? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, thankfully, Jesus makes it very clear for us. He tells us it's right from Daniel. Now, Daniel, in chapter 9, spoke about this abomination of desolation. And in the book of Daniel, it's a figure, a prince, who will come and will desecrate the temple that he will, he will desecrate and defile and stop all the sacrifices in the temple. Let me just read you a couple of verses. In chapter 9 of Daniel, we read, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. 
Chapter 11, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So Daniel's prophesying this. Now in 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek ruler, came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. He slaughtered a pig on the altar. He spread the pig's blood and urine all over the temple. And he stopped all the sacrifices. A clear fulfillment of Daniel. He defiled the temple and stopped its sacrifices. Just like Daniel had said hundreds of years before. So what Jesus is doing is he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, according to the word spoken by Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus is saying to his disciples in that generation there, when you see what Daniel prophesied, you know that the end is near, the end of Jerusalem. In other words, he's interpreting the abomination of desolation just as Daniel did that the Roman armies will come and surround Jerusalem, <clears throat> and it happened in less than 40 years, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem, they're going to destroy the temple. He goes, that's the beginning of the end. Let the reader understand. That's going to mark the time as this present age is going to start moving towards an end. So it's a marker for us. Now, it was a horrible desecration of Jerusalem, Many as four million Jews they thought were killed. As I said a couple weeks ago, lining corpses up, throwing corpses over the side of the walls. It was so disastrous. But Jesus is saying, notice what he says. He says, flee to the mountains, right? He says, if you're on the rooftop, don't go down and get your purse, get out to the hills. If you're in the field, don't go back and get your wallet, run. He's telling them to flee because it's not the end. In other words, preserve your life. It's not the end. It's the beginning of the end, but it's not the end. So this 15 to 20, when you look at those verses in 15 to 20, pray that your flight might not be in winter. Why? Because of the rains and the, and the difficulty of running. Or Sabbath, they hadn't prepared food to run. That 15 to 20, I would propose to you, is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem the tribulation that comes upon Jerusalem. And that tribulation becomes a picture of what is to follow. This is what we call prophetic layering, where one prophecy will have a fulfillment, but there'll be another fulfillment behind it. You can't always see it from way back when. It's like a mountain range that has mountain after mountain. It just looks like all one mountain range, but as you get closer, then there's another mountain. Then you see the valley between the mountains. So in 15 to 20, he is just prophesying that Jerusalem will fall. And this was in respect to his promise in chapter 23. He said to the Pharisees for rejecting him, he says, your house will be laid, what? Desolate, abomination of desolation. It's the same word. So, so the fall of Jerusalem is in fulfillment of what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 23, 30, 38. Your house will be left to you desolate. Okay, so, but, but Jerusalem, 15 to 20, becomes a picture now, a window, a lens through which we look. You notice there's a bit of a temporal change. There's a time marker. Look with me in 21. In 21, he says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world. I would again see this as looking beyond Jerusalem. So beyond the time of the fall of Jerusalem. 
that he's speaking about the next time, so that prophetic layering, another layer. You see the, the fact that it's going to be this great tribulation. And what happens is I think the tribulation that is pictured in Jerusalem is now going to be broadened and deepened as it goes out to the entire world. It's broadened in this sense. In 15 to 20, he's warning a, a geographically limited people. The people of Judea flee to the mountains. But he's not doing that now. Look with me in 22. He says, if those days, that is of the great tribulation, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. There's a broader audience here. Now he's saying that no human being. It wasn't just the people of Judea. Now it's the entire world that is being affected by this great tribulation. Not only that, but he says about the, um, about the deepening of it. It's a great tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Well, the tragedy of Jerusalem was clearly a horrific battle. But it doesn't make, it, it isn't the greatest battle of ever, of all time, from the beginning of the world. So there seems to be, in 21 through 28, this promise that there's going to be this expanding tribulation upon the world and upon the church, but upon the world as well, that looked like Jerusalem, but on a much wider, broader, and deeper scale. But Jesus, remember, he's giving us this discourse so as to protect us from deceit, that we wouldn't be deceived, that we would endure. And so notice what he warns us of. And this is typical. Anytime something happens on a global scale, we tend to think the sky is falling. The tsunami just a number of years back that took out a quarter million people. You know, or if you were in Germany in 45, it's got to be the end of the world. Or London during the bombings. Or during the plague in Europe. I mean, we tend to see global crisis and say, is this the end? Is this the end? And we look for messiahs. And we look for saviors to come and deliver us. And that's why Jesus says, he says in, in 26, so if they say, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. Or in 23, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. In other words, Jesus is warning, when the tribulation begins to move upon the world, people are going to start clamoring for a savior. And they're going to say, he's there, and he's here, and he's in the inner room. Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't succumb to that. He tells us that through the tribulation, there's going to be a stop point. And you notice in 27, he says, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will, come, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, when Jesus Christ turns, it's not going to be secret. It's not going to be confusing. It's not going to be mistakable. It's going to be clear. The e, just as flashes of lightning fill the sky like a spider's web, you will see it, and you will know it. So don't worry about the, the, the tribulations that are coming are going to come. They are not necessarily the end. The end will be clear. That's why he speaks about these vultures and, and over carcasses. I think, and just about every one of these verses is up for question, it's that confusing. But I think what it's simply saying is you don't need to tell a vulture where a carcass is. It's quickly known to them. If there's a carcass, there'll be vultures there. And if he comes back, you'll know it. There's no doubt. There's no hiddenness to his return. 
So, so what we have here is in 15 to 28, Jesus is speaking about the ending of our present age. If you want to set your timer on the beginning of the end, set it on the fall of Jerusalem. Once that happened, the temple's wiped away, the end begins, and our present age is hurtling towards its end. And the present age will be marked by the things that you read about in 4 to 14, and then from 21 to 28, this idea of persecution and wars and famines and earthquakes. These are the signs of the times in which we now live. We are in the end times. Are these the end of the end times? I don't know. But, but I think one takeaway for the Christian here is don't be deceived by the trials and the tribulations that come upon this world. Now, we in Western culture have been uniquely kind of bubbleized, if you will, for many of the trials and the struggles that many nations have. We are geographically surrounded by water. That has been a huge form of protection in this world. But you know most of the world goes through wars and famines and earthquakes. We all go through those. But think about Will Durant, the famous historian, said out of 3,400 years of recorded history, 268 have not known war. There's always been wars. There's wars, there's earthquakes, there's holocausts, there's ethnic cleansings. Before World War II, there were ethnic cleansings. You read about, you read about the Ottoman Empire. You read about these different rulers. There's always been these wars and rumors of wars. There's been famines. When, when Vesuvius blew and Pompeii was buried. I mean, didn't you think the end of the world would be coming then? Or if you were in Russia when Germany was coming? Can you imagine? We've always had those things in this time. And we'll always have... It, it isn't meaning that the end is now upon us. It may be at one point. But we don't want to rush to fear. This is one of the problems, if you will, with, with prosperity preachers. You know, Jesus is telling us this so that when we endure tribulation, we will endure, we will persevere. We won't wonder, has he abandoned us? Why hasn't he come? In other words, the idea that your best life is now or that praying by faith will get you everything that your heart may desire does not prepare you for these days. And I would even caution those of you who have heard of and, and believed in a pre-tribulation rapture, as many people teach. That does not prepare you for this. There is no, there's just Jesus saying the tribulation exists. You're going to see, actually, in 29, I would just want to jump there real quick, immediately after the tribulation of those days, it's a period of time. It doesn't say seven years. It may. I don't know for sure. But the tribulation is a period of time that marks this present age that's hurtling to a conclusion. And we want to be prepared for this. We want to be aware of it. So don't be deceived by the times in which we lived. You, you know, when, when Carol and I came to faith, or when I came to faith at least, uh, I used to listen to this TV preacher uh, that would read the newspaper and interpret the modern events in light of Scripture. And I didn't realize at the time he was just what we call eisegeting. You know, you're taking a modern truth and you're trying to put it into the Bible and understand the Bible from modern times rather than reading the Bible and understanding it and interpreting modern times by the Bible. 
And, and, and it, it got us all worked up and nervous about all these changing events. Like now this new virus that comes up. That's the way it's going to be. God weaning us away from the love of this world so that our affections will be set on him. That virus, it was West Nile before. What's it going to be called next? I don't know. That's the times in which we live. Again, we've got to break away from this Western culture that we, we control our medical position. We control it in that way. Carol, um, in her first Bible study, or one of her first Bible studies, instead of learning about Jesus Christ and the cross, she was instructed on how all the signs of the time meant Christ was coming in 82. 82, not, it didn't happen. That was a lot of wasted Bible study time, I would say. 82 was when he was supposed to come back. It's okay. We want to be prepared, as I'm going to argue for. But that date setting, because of the times we live in, it causes us to be easily deceived as we were. Uh, but secondly, I'd say, uh, don't be deceived into thinking that God doesn't care for you, his children. You know, twice in here he speaks about his elect, those whom he has chosen, that he cuts the days short, that God exercises sovereign control over the tribulations of this world. And he does it in respect and in favor of his children. You even see this in verse 25. In verse 25, he says, See, I've told you beforehand. I mean, people that love you warn you. You know, God measures out the tribulations that we will endure. Charles Spurgeon gave these words that have always been instructive to me anytime we've gone through difficulty. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher of, in London in the 19th century, says, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. What other options do we have that our trials are just happenstance? Would that bring a greater measure of peace to you? Or that our trials come from darkness itself? Would that be better? Do you not want God? Do you not take comfort in the fact that he is favoring us? God orders our steps. And even the steps of our tribulation will be ordered for good purposes for us. So don't be deceived in that tribulation means that somehow God is against you or paying you back for your sins. If you're a Christian, the gospel teaches us that Jesus has borne the judgment for our sins. God will never bring his judging tribulation upon us. He cannot. We are his own. The Christ has borne that. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is bearing the curse that our sin has brought. We will not bear that curse. So don't be deceived into thinking he doesn't care for you. And also, thirdly, don't be deceived into thinking that the gospel is somehow not up for the challenge of these days. It's only the gospel that's going to go to the ends of the world. It's only the preaching of the gospel. You know, God's strategy during this time of delay, in this period that we call the tribulational period, now I'm expanding it from what many of you have heard it to be, you know, for us, it looks different. But if you've been in Sudan, or if you've been in Syria, or if you've been in Iraq, or many other places, 
You know, this idea of a tribulation just being a tough time at the very end of the age is questionable. They can only kill you once, and they're killing them once over there. They can't kill you twice. So killing is about the most they can do. But the gospel's sufficient even in these contexts. I mean, the gospel is to go out. So do you understand that these days that we have are actually days that we, the church, are proclaiming the power of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, he says, that, um, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save for everyone who believes. So, I mean, we have a purpose here. You know, this, it's a call for the church to be mindful of its surroundings. Are we utilizing the time that God has given to us to preach the gospel? The gospel is going out into the world all through those signs of the tribulation. We're called to preach the gospel now. And when I speak about preaching the gospel, I'm not just saying foreign fields, but I'm saying here. Jen Wilkin, who um, wrote the Bible study that many of you women are uh, studying, uh, wrote a blog post the other day I found to be very instructive regarding this idea of not missing the mission fields of suburbia because we're simply looking at the mission fields afar. She writes, Behold suburbia, the mission field for whom our hearts do not break. We hold them in contempt as those who have heard and spurned the gospel. Their failing marriages, their rebellious children, their quiet addictions stir in us weariness and weariness. This is their own doing. This is the fruit of their commonplace lives of capitulation and mediocrity. Suffering and loss may visit them, but they still drive to hospitals and grave sites and late model SUVs. Why should we pour out our lives on the rocky soil of suburban America when for the price of a plane ticket we can till the fertile fields of Africa, Asia, and South America? But who are we to say that one soil is more fertile than another? Perhaps this field is yours to till simply because you find yourself already in it. No plane ticket required, no bold geographical leap of faith, just a slow and steady determination to respond well to the call to love your neighbor, literally. Even if their problems are messy and mundane and not the stuff of headlines or documentaries, even if they never soften to the gospel. So in this day and in this age, we're called to proclaim the gospel. So don't be deceived in thinking that suburban America is somehow shut up to the power of the gospel. In these days, we're called to preach it. So we have here in 15 to 28, I would simply put to you that Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a picture of the tribulation and trial that will eventually intensify and broaden to the entire world. And then you have 29, the end will come. The new age will begin. Jesus, as it were in 29, is saying, lift your eyes off of the trouble of the earth, look to heavens, this is where your help is coming from. Look at what he says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. So Jesus is saying immediately after those days of tribulation, immediately, there is no hesitation. Remember now, this is a long period of time. Boom, he comes down. He comes down, and the first sign of this new age is a cosmological phenomena that is without measure, right? It says the sun is darkened. Of course, the moon will be darkened because it's reflecting its light. But he says all the stars will fall. The heavens will be shaken. Listen to what Isaiah says, by the way. Prophesies the same thing. 
13.10, for the stars of heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. It says, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. Do I think this is literal? I think I do. I think it's a literal response to the creator, King Jesus, creator of all things, coming back. All the stars go out. They're humbled and laid low before the one who comes. I mean, out of the black velvet of darkness, the shining brilliance of the return of Christ comes. You know, put this in, there's been a recent discovery, there's this radar telescope in Australia that has the capacity to cut through much of the dust and the matter and gases of the Milky Way. And they have just discovered 883 new galaxies two-thirds of which they never knew existed. This is just within weeks. A galaxy only has about 100 billion stars. And they just discovered, you know, modern man and all of his brilliance and wisdom just figured out, they opened the back door, oh, there's another 600 galaxies with 100 billion stars apiece. And all those have been created by him, and they all go down. Darkness. Why? Why would everything go dark? And then the light of Christ... I think it's to tell us that it's the new age. Think back on the primordial times when everything was dark. And what did God say? Let there be light. And the sun that was created has caused the light of this present age. But it's the light of the sun that will give light in the new age. Everything will go dark. It's a recreation, if you will, of all things. That's what we're going to see, this cosmological phenomena. Things go dark, and then the sign in heaven, the brilliant display of Christ. And it says in 30 that he's going to come on clouds with power and great glory. You know, the clouds are always representing the divine presence of God. God's known as the cloud rider. Jesus coming back in glory and power. And notice what it says the world will do. It says the tribes of the earth, not the tribes of Israel, The tribes of the world will mourn. They're going to mourn when they see him come back in victorious power. They're going to mourn because of their rejection, their antagonism, their apathy toward him. Can you imagine that word mourn? It's an allusion to Zechariah 12 where we read, When they look upon me, on whom they have pierced, so it's referencing the cross, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. What a proper description there to consider mourning for an only child. You'll mourn over the fact that you did not understand. You did not believe. You did not repent. You did not turn and place your faith in Christ. So there's going to be this glorious light. He comes back on the clouds with full glory and power. And then it says in 31 that he's going to gather up his elect, his church. He's going to call them together. It says he's going to send his angels out. A trumpet's going to sound. But think about it for a minute. This day of judgment that will bring such fear and, and cause of mourning will be a time of rejoicing for us. I mean, he's coming to gather us. That's us. He's coming back for us. It's not just joy for us to see him, but there's a joy in him to see us. 
We are the fruit of his labor. He's died to save us. It's a reunion. You, you, you see a friend that you haven't seen in years and your heart leaps with excitement over, the, over wanting to share what has gone on in life. Can you imagine the gathering of all the saints? Can you imagine the joy it will be? Not just over your loved ones, but all the saints will be gathered together. But he's coming for us. He's not just coming to make ends right. He is doing that. But he's coming for us. Are you longing for him? He's longing for us. The certainty of it, I think, is seen, the certainty of this new age is seen in the parable of the fig tree in, in 32 to 35. You know, the branches sprout the leaves. You know they're tender because life is coursing through through the veins of the tree and, and the leaves are coming out and it's tender. I think there's, a, there's an expectancy that we're called to have. An expectancy, not that he will come tomorrow, but he can come tomorrow. But there's an expectancy. But there's surely in the parable a certainty, right? Because he says, though the earth and the, 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 earth and the heavens are going to give way, my words will never pass away. There's this promise on the very word of Christ that when I'm preaching, at least in his return, invisible power and glory, coming to gather his church and, and finish out justice on this world, that that's absolutely trustworthy and true. You can rest in that. So you see here in this Matthew 24, you have you know, 15 to 28, the start, the fall of Jerusalem is the start of a tribulation, a tribulation that will expand and deepen until that final day that he comes back and the lights go out, the light of Christ comes on. He comes in glory and power to both deliver justice to the wicked and to deliver redemption to his elect, to his people. So you see the, the present age collapse into the new age. I think that's what you see. Next week we'll talk about when he's going to return. You won't want to miss that one because I've got a date for you. What do we do with this? I mean, if you're, if you're not religious, you know, you're, you're just interested maybe in these things, but, but you're not religious per se. You don't believe in... It is fanciful. It is. I mean, to believe in the gospel, to believe that Jesus died and rose again, that takes faith, no doubt about it. And now teaching you to believe that he's going to come and in power and glory and the lights are going to go out and the moon, the moon, everything shuts down and he comes in glory and power. I mean... It's the stuff of fairy tales for some people, no doubt about it. But if it's true, if it's true, then this is probably, I'd say it's the kindest warning you could get. It's, it's really gracious, isn't it? I mean, if it's true, and I'll, I'll grant you that everybody lives by faith, by the way. The, the non-religious lives by faith that the world happened as he or she thinks it has. and Everybody has faith. But if it's true, it's the kindest warning he could give you. Because to be caught unawares would be devastating. In fact, C.S. Lewis kind of writes it up this way. It's a little extended quote, so would you bear with me on this? He says, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you were on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise. 
Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. That was from his book, Mere Christianity. That's a good way of, of these are the days that we live in. And if you're not religious, I would ask you to consider these things. What do you think about the end? What do you think will happen? If, if, you, if you have questions, if you'd like to talk about it, I'd love to talk about it after the service or call the office, or meet with someone that belongs to this church. Ask them for them to explain it to you. But for the Christian, what do we do with this? Well, I would at least, I would at least ask you to ask yourself, how much do I long for this? Do I desire him to return? I mean, in the comfort of Western Christianity, how often in a week will you consider this day? This day is the day in Scripture. There is no greater day. People want to make the tribulation the great whore. The tribulation is not. This is the day that all of Scripture is pointing to. The ending, the completing of everything God's planned. The end of his redemption. You know, the creation of all things beautiful, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Thing goes off rail there. And then the whole plan of God to bring it back to what? To this day. How often do you long for this day? How often do you think about it? Do you consider it? If you don't, repent. Ask God for grace. Ask God to give you a longing. Ask God to stir your heart that this would matter to you in the midst of your busyness. And then third, secondly, I would also say uh, that we're to marvel over this day. Not marvel in giddiness. This will be a day of terror. It will be literally an awesome day. You know, we've used that for good stuff now, but awesome, you know, it's like terrible and terrific. It kind of contains both sides. For the Christian, it causes me to marvel over his grace at saving me, that I should be found on the right side of this day. Do you marvel over it? Can you imagine? Let me just read to you some scripture. When John saw Jesus after he was resurrected and glorified, this is the way that the world will see him, I believe. He says, I turned and saw the voice that was spoken to me, and turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of mighty waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I think that's probably an apt description. You know, nowhere in Scripture do people walk up to angels. Even angels make people fall down. And the angels have to say, get up, I'm an angel. Get up, I'm an angel. Every time anyone from the divine presence comes among humans, they fall down. We're not walking up to this returning king. Let me read to you out of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. 
with a golden crown on his head, sharp sickle in his hand. And an angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is a day to marvel over, both in fear for the lost and in humility for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And then then thirdly, I would say it's a day to reconsider the nature of the church. It's a day to reconsider who we are with one another. I mean, when you think about the church being the outpost of heaven, that he is coming for us, it gets back to how much are we preparing one another for this day? Are we seeking the spiritual good? Are, are, Are we... Are we reconciling conflict? Are are we intentionally having conversations that will lead to the spiritual development of another? Will we fight through the natural fears of getting into a community? It is scary to move towards someone in community. For many of us who are inhibited, it's a very trying and difficult thing. It's very hard to go to someone you don't know and speak. But he's coming for us, and our, our part of our task as a church is to seek one another's spiritual good so that we might be ready. That we might not, like the writer of Hebrews says, shrink back when he comes, but be fully ready and excited. So there's much here for us. Not to be deceived, but to persevere. So let's just take a minute now and and consider these things. And if there are questions in your mind that you need answered, then please come forward. Um, Otherwise, let's just take a minute now and, and ask God for grace. Maybe it will lead you to a point of conviction of sin. Perhaps it will lead you to uh, receiving the comfort that is yours in Christ. And then an elder will close us in prayer. Thank you.